On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Gavin Ortland about the history of baptism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is baptism and has it there been a specific shared view of baptism throughout the history of the church? What were the sacramental views on baptism in the early church? What was the majority view on paedo-baptism or credo-baptism in the patristic church? What was the rationale for paedo-baptism at different times in history? And how does this contrast with the Reformed rationale and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast and really online center. I mean, we, we do more than just podcasts. We've got YouTube videos. We've got an annual print journal. We've got uh, the John Gill Project, all sorts of things, all centered around this one core idea of serious thinking for serious church. So everything we do, we're trying to promote that. And the way we've really ca- cashed that out is through a couple of different virtues. I mean, there's a lot more, but this is the way we've just tried to like s- summarize it and synthesize it. And that is being a place, an intellectual culture, cultivating this place of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So it means cheerfully confessing and not being afraid. So not being afraid of what our confession is. I mean, we stand in line with the historic Orthodox and Reformed uh, believers of, uh, of all time, and we're happy about that. We're not going to beat you over the head with it. We want to say, this is good news. We think this is a great way to summarize doctrine, and we want to be happy about it. But we also want to be just very serious in our thinking, very serious in our kindness, very serious in our virtue. I think all these things matter. So we don't want to like lose one or the other. We want to keep them all bundled up together. And it's extremely difficult in this day and age with all the stuff that goes in the online world. So we're trying to like chart a path in that. We're not perfect. We're not always good at it, but we're striving towards that. Now, Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Gavin Ortland, who I think exemplifies all that we hope to be and do in a, in a way that's better than us, really, honestly. So if, if you don't know Dr. Gavin Ortland, I mean, he's got a YouTube channel, which is just incredibly awesome. So it's called Truth Unites. If you're not familiar with it, you need to go check it out. He's doing some of the most unique, cutting edge, and awesome work there in the YouTube space, because that is a place that needs uh, more solid voices. And he is one of those people who's not just trying to do clickbait. He's doing legitimate, serious dialogue. So it's it's awesome. But And you may know him. We, we've done episodes in the past on theological retrieval and different things. We're going to be talking, and he's got books on those things, if you didn't know. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes as well, so you can go get a copy of them, because they're all awesome. But we're going to be talking about the history of baptism today, because he's done a lot of research on this, and also because he was formerly a paedo-baptist. So I think this is even more interesting. So, uh, Gavin, before we get started, maybe give me, I, I mean, I'm Imagine most of our listeners know who you are, but just give me a 30 to 60 second bio of who you are, where you're at to orient our listeners who aren't familiar with you. And then give me maybe the Cliff Notes version of what really convinced you to say, I want to be a Credo Baptist. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for the kind words and for having me on. It's awesome to talk with you guys and love the work that you do. Um, Yeah, I'm a pastor. We have four kids and a fifth on the way due in August. Uh, We live in Ojai, California, which is northwest of LA. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai. And uh, as you mentioned, I, my 
a lot of my scholarship is in uh, theological retrieval, or uh, and then I've also gotten into apologetics, and then I run the YouTube channel that does uh, a lot of work on kind of defending Protestantism, because that's a big thing that's going on in the YouTube conversations. So um, let's see. Uh, yeah, baptism has been an interesting journey for me. It's in it's zero uh, percent an emotional identity marker, like oh, I really feel more drawn to this team than that team, something like that. It's just a theological conviction in terms of trying to follow my conscience. I was raised in the um, a, a Presbyterian context. I loved that context, and I I just always want to try to honor that because I that's really where I came to Christ. That's where I grew in Christ. I I, I, I just I miss that world. I have such deep friends in that world. Um, honestly, I I feel so grateful to God for my um, for what I benefited from there. When I was in seminary, I did a study. I So my last semester of college, I'm feeling this call to ministry. I'm realizing, well, I've always been uncertain about this issue, and that's going to affect where I could be ordained, whether Baptist or Presbyterian at that time was the options. And so I just did an intensive study a little bit that last semester, and then I took my first year at seminary to study it and just ended up coming down on the Credo Baptist side. And then from that time till now, I've continued to revisit that, think about that, especially in relation to questions of open and closed membership, open and closed communion, questions that come up with regard to Catholicity, how do we relate to the broader church, the great traditions, um, and then conversations about baptismal regeneration that have come up more, even more recently in over the last year and a half, I've been studying that issue. And that's, I think I mentioned, I'm talking with a Roman Catholic apologist next week, and that's the topic of our conversation there. So it's been a interesting issue for me. And, uh, you know, it's sad because it's, it's a symbol of unity, and yet it has so often been the occasion for fragmentation. So at the very least, we can talk about that and, and, and work at it and figure out what do we do about that. Yeah, you mentioned that it, it it causes some fragmentation, and baptism is uh, a polarizing issue, um, especially you know in online debates and everything. So I thought maybe a good place to start, um, as we frame this discussion of baptism um, in church history, would be um, where is the common ground? So wh- what are what are the the common uh, features of of baptism? All the way from you know the Book of Acts until today. I mean, I realize there's a whole lot more that's probably different um, and how views have changed over the centuries. But what has the church always held in common when it comes to baptism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the sad thing is that there's not a ton of <laughs> common ground because anything we say, number one, we can probably find some odd person or group out there that's not adhered to that. So, um, but I think we could say kind of the mainstream things. Charles Hodge, the Presbyterian theologian at Princeton, old Princeton, listed three criteria. He thought a lot about this question about kind of not just what should you do, but what's the bare minimum where if you don't have that, it doesn't even count as baptism, you know? And so he said there's three things. Uh, You need to have water. You need to have, it needs to be done in the name of the Trinity, doesn't necessarily mean you have to say the Father, Son, Spirit during the baptismal formula. So, but but it needs to be done in the name of the Trinity. And then third, you need the intent of obedience. So water, you know, that that actually would exclude some groups like the Albigensians in the medieval ages who baptized with rose petals. Um, the Trinity, that would exclude, for example, for example, a Mormon baptism. Um, and then the intent of obedience. Uh, that means when you have like a mass baptism of 
Native Americans by certain settlers, and it really, the intention of it wasn't even to follow Jesus. It was more for political purposes. He, he would say, that doesn't count. That That's not really Christian baptism. And so I have found those three criteria a helpful thing to go back to, to say this is kind of the core foundation that um, all lowercase o orthodox Christians can agree upon. All right, good. So we've got the core foundation, this basic level of agreement on some of the core things that baptism is supposed to mean and communicate. Now I want to know a little bit more about the nature of it as a sacrament. I mean, what is baptism doing in the early church, in the medieval church, and onward? Is it the same? Is there a consensus? Is there not a consensus? Because, for example— Something that I often hear for those who want to affirm something like baptismal regeneration, they want to say baptism affects salvation, whether I'm talking maybe to a certain sort of Anglican or or a Lutheran, and there seems to be this idea that that's the way baptism was understood universally, that's the consensus across the board, it's just obvious that is what the text means. So how do we think about what baptism's doing in the tradition particularly in the patristic church. Is there a level of disagreement amongst each other and of the thinkers that are going on there? Just help me think through that. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> yeah, so there are, as we kind of move from those points of commonality to the disagreements, there are two major points of disagreement. One is the proper subjects of baptism. Should it be just those who profess faith in Christ or those who profess faith in Christ plus their children, or we should say the children of one or more, believing parents. Um, and then the other one is this, uh, the meaning of baptism. Does it actually confer forgiveness of sins? Is it regenerative? And if so, what does that mean? And yes, this is the common appeal that's made uh, that it is universal among the church fathers. I think that I would say uh, it is not, and it, it is more complicated. And as soon as we ask, what do you mean by baptism of regeneration? We actually start to see uh, this is tricky, you know. Um, I will say that I think what is universal and what is outstanding is a very high view of baptism, a view of baptismal realism, by which I mean baptism does do something. God is using baptism unto a particular end and an association of baptism with regeneration. But the thing that I would say is I don't think it's always causative. Uh, so, and that's so how baptismal regeneration is usually defined. That baptism is the cause of salvation. And the reason I say that is I do find passages in the Fathers will they'll they'll speak of baptism as regenerative, but then they'll speak of the person being regenerated in the water as already regenerated before they got in the water. And so what that alerts us to is the complexity of this word regeneration. See, when when we use that word today, we usually think of that initial translation from dead in sin to alive to God. That's how I use the term, you know, you're made new. And, but um, I think that there's a couple of things that are tricky. One is some people will use the word regeneration, like in the Lutheran tradition, for example, it, it, not just as a punctiliar event, but as something that can be augmented and increased or extended in some way. And the other tricky thing is that baptism can be spoken of as regenerative without necessarily being the cause of regeneration. So we can say that baptism regenerates without necessarily saying that that means you're not yet regenerated till you literally get in the water. And the, the reason is, and this is my view and what I've argued for, is that baptism does have a symbolical character. 
And I'm not saying it's only a sign. I think God gives grace through the sacrament, but I think it does stand as this representative act of the public, visible, formal expression of salvation, including regeneration. So I think it's, uh, I actually think the best way to understand it is that uh, it's not like, you know, you come to faith in Christ in, uh, I don't know, you know, January, and uh, your life is transformed, and you're following Christ, and you're in the catechetical process leading up to baptism, and you're baptized in October, and therefore you're not yet regenerated over the summer and in the spring. But rather that in October, this is like the formal sealing of regeneration. This is this public character and expression. And so it can be spoken of as regenerative in that sense. I think that's consistent with how at least some of the fathers thought, and Justin Martyr and Cyril of Jerusalem are the two I've pointed to in my work on this. And I also think it is um, consistent with what the sacrament is, with the New Testament passages, with common pastoral and Christian experience. I just think it kind of is the best way to put all the puzzle pieces together. That's my best effort at understanding. So if if we transition now to a discussion of the proper subjects um, of baptism, one of the things as a Baptist that I've found frustrating in online discussions is it's often, um, and of course, not everyone does this, so I don't don't mean to say that everyone does, but um, it's kind of the picture is painted in such a way where it's like, you know, for, for 1,500 years, you know, you know, the 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 matter was settled on proper subjects of baptism until you Baptists came along and then, you know, you, you changed everything, you know, after the church had been agreed on it. Um, but it as I started to look into this, it seemed like things were much, much more complicated than that in the early centuries of the church. So um, I, I haven't read all of this book, but there's, uh, and I know you've, you've referenced this book uh, in some of your work, but in the Studies in uh, Christian History and Thought series, Infant Baptism in Historical Perspective by David Wright, um, he he notes in chapter five there that, I mean, he lists a lot of these well-known uh, church fathers who were raised in uh, Christian homes, but then they were um, not baptized as babies. They were baptized later on. And this seems, when I read this, I was actually just kind of stunned. I mean, he, he lists names like Ambrose, Augustine, Basil the Great, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, John Chrysostom. I mean, names that we're all going to be familiar with. They were raised by believing parents, but they weren't baptized until a, a later age. Um, so that seemed, when I, when I read that, I was like, well, this is much more uh, the the waters are much muddier uh, than you know we've been led to believe. I wanted to get you to speak on that. Like, what do you think was happening in the earliest centuries? Do you think that credo baptism was the primary view, and then it changed over time uh, in the first few centuries, and then there was a big pivot point, or was there always um, just a lot of confusion over who the proper subjects were in the early centuries? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the David Wright book. That's a great book. Another one is Everett Ferguson's book. Uh, he's got a great treatment of kind of canvases all the texts. And my basic answer to this would be, I think that it is very complicated. It is very, very complicated. I have patience for people who are wrestling with this. I, I think the one thing I don't have patience for is when people come in with a triumphalist mentality. Kind of like you mentioned, you know, everybody saw it one way. It's like, no, I, you know, I think we can safely say that there was a, a strong view of baptismal realism. That's true. So to the extent that that claim is being made against those who really have a a weak or anemic view of of baptism, they don't call it a sacrament, and they don't think it conveys grace or has any realist efficacy, I think that's fair. 
I think that is fair to say the fathers are pretty squarely against that. They, they see baptism as uh, in, a, in a much different light than that. Uh, on the other hand, the question of subjects, uh, this is tricky. Here, here's my best effort to sketch out where I would generally see it based upon surveying the texts, looking at people like Wright and uh, Ferguson and others, and, and seeing, you know, I'm not way out of the bounds on the scholarship here with those two, for example. I mean, Ferguson, I think, is a Church of Christ, which practices credo-baptism and also believes in baptismal regeneration. Um, I think David Wright was dual practice. Church of He was in the Church of Scotland, but I think he was kind of a little bit more open to dual practice. So um, a lot of these top scholars on this question, they are recognizing the case for pedo-baptism in the fathers is not clear or, or obvious or a slam dunk. So basically what I'd say is early on, to me, it looks like it is credo-baptism, as in among the apostolic fathers, by which we mean kind of those late first century, early second century testimonies. Um, and then as you get into the late second century, the first time you're, you see a reference to infant baptism, to my awareness, is with Tertullian, who rejects the practice. Now, it's people often say, well, Tertullian wasn't a Baptist, and that's true. He doesn't think just like a modern-day Baptist, but he does favor the delay of baptism. Um, and he is concerned, he says, let them be Christians or let them know Christ before they are made Christians, i.e. before they are baptized. And then you see in the third century, a lot of testimony for pedo-baptism, uh, Origen and Cyprian and others claim pedo-baptism does go back to the apostles. And then you see in the fourth century, this massive spike of credo-baptism. Uh, and I again, I'm not saying credo-baptist and capital B Baptist are the same, but I'm using that to refer to baptizing someone subsequent to their profession of faith in Christ as an adult or as an older child. And so you mentioned uh, you mentioned this, you know, in the 4th century, and this is what all the scholars are talking about, this 4th century spike of credo-baptism with uh, Jerome, Rufinus, Augustine, Ambrose, Basel, Gregory of Nazianzus, John Chrysostom, just down the line. And that's the first time when we really have also real specific concrete information about the date of the baptism, the, whether they're from a Christian family and so forth. And then Augustine really turns the tide, I think. His views, his affirmation of infant baptism eventually kind of comes to predominate. So what I would abstract from that historical data is it's tough to say. Um, it's tough to say. I think my I'm persuaded credo-baptism was the original view. And pedo-baptism came in partially uh in the second, third, fourth century, but not fully. And then after Augustine, it kind of comes to predominate. But I think the evidence can be read in multiple ways, and we shouldn't be dogmatic about that, because the early evidence is tough because we don't have tons of information. But that's my best effort at trying to just give the big picture of the forest. So a similar question, at least along the lines of the subject of baptism. So contemporary Reformed theological rationale for infant baptism seems to me, at least, to differ significantly from what, say, the earlier church would have had as far as a rationale, or the medieval church especially, for why you would baptize an infant. It seems that there was, with Calvin and, and further on, this theological justification for infant baptism that was based on a covenantal structure that isn't necessarily what was going on with someone like Augustine or somebody else or Tertullian for, for why they would want to baptize an infant. So, 
am I right in thinking that the theological rationale does differ and differ significantly? And does that matter? Does it matter that their theological justification for it is different? Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. So Zwingli, in advocating for his view of baptism, says everyone was wrong since the time of the apostles. And the reason for that is exactly what you're getting at there, that the, the meaning of baptism and the rationale for infant baptism is different for the Reformed tradition mainly versus the pre-Reformation church. Um, because of this question of baptism or regeneration, there are some Reformed people who would affirm that, but for the most part, that's the Reformed argument is different. It tends to appeal to the covenant, and this is as a sign of the covenant. It's not necessarily conferring forgiveness of sins or regeneration in some way. And so um, it's interesting. We, you know, sometimes people think of the view, the options as like twofold. Like you could have um, like a, a modern day Baptist view versus, you know, like the Catholic and Orthodox view and so forth. But then if you see those two points of distinction, the subjects of baptism, the meaning of baptism, what you actually see is there's a, a fourfold. You know, you, you do like a, a line down and a line across and you got four options. Because while most people tend to be, you know, like a Baptist will be non-baptismal regeneration, credo-baptism, you've also got uh, credo-baptist groups that affirm baptismal regeneration, like the Churches of Christ. And I mentioned Edward Ferguson. And then you've got, on the other side, you've got the baptismal regeneration, pedo-baptism traditions, which is most of Christendom. That's Coptic, Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, you know, um, to some extent Methodist. Um, but then you've got the Reformed or Presbyterian tribe that's pedo-baptist, non-baptismal regeneration, if I got all that right. <laughs> and then you've got other groups out there, too, and Pentecostals sometimes will vary and so forth. So it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just helpful to see the different options. And I do think, if nothing else, one thing that that should reduce is when a Reformed or Presbyterian Christian says, ah, the Baptists are really breaking from the tradition. It's like, yeah, so are you. <laughs> uh, we're just doing so in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly how I felt or thought at the time when I was really wrestling through paid baptism. You know, my Presbyterian friends would press on me and say, look, you are breaking from tradition. You're not baptizing infants like everybody else has. But the more I thought about it, like you've said here, I realized, you know what, so are you. So then I, I guess it becomes comes down to who's being most consistent with Scripture and their own theological systems as well. Um, but there's another, I think, powerful argument for pedo-baptism that I'd love you to walk me through a little bit. So Ephesians 4 talks about, you know, there's one Lord, one faith. It says one baptism. How is it as a credo-baptist you can affirm that statement that there is one baptism when many credo-baptists will say, look, your baptism's invalid. They'll, they'll hand wave away thousands of years worth of baptism because it was being done improperly. So how is it that a credo-baptist can affirm this and remain Catholic in spirit? Yes, I have agonized over this question myself and tried to figure out how to do this and be true to my conscience for what I believe about baptism, but then at what point do you also, um, how does that relate to Catholicity and how do we function in light of that? Um, and I would say, you know, with respect to the language of one baptism, it seems to me that we can all say there's one baptism because everyone is going to acknowledge that there are parameters outside of which um, the practice really isn't baptism. So everyone is going to say there's some invalid expressions of this right. And for all of us, 
when we say that, we don't mean that there still isn't just one thing, right? So we can all acknowledge there's, there's, we all believe there's one baptism. Now, I think the challenge for us is um, how can we maintain a sense of meaningful continuity with the Christian church when one of the two sacraments uh, we are departing from in terms of how it is practiced? And I would say a couple things about that. I think one, let me keep my comments, um, well, I'll make two comments. One is I do think that the triumphalism of the appeals against Baptists and other credo-Baptist groups today, Pentecostals, for example, uh, should be reduced by the complexity of the historical data. Um, I think we should, for example, here's one consideration that should reduce that sense of condescension for the credo-Baptist traditions. While uh, while it's true that Pytho-Baptism and baptismal regeneration come to predominate throughout the Christian church from the time of Augustine on roughly. I mean, there are certain pockets of the world where people have argued credo-baptism persists for longer, like Ireland, for example. So people argue credo-baptism is going on in Ireland into like the sixth century and, and even later sometimes. But, you know, so those are the claims. But it, eventually it comes to a predominate. Um, there are also other aspects of baptism that come to predominate that we all depart from. And this is where the influence of Augustine must be appreciated. Uh, you know, one of the things you realize in studying the history of theology is basically Augustine is a game changer. He just dominates medieval theology, especially in the West. And uh, Augustine held that uh, unbaptized babies who die are damned to hell. That was his view. And so far as I can tell, that was the universal view from Augustine until the Reformation. I see it in Anselm. I see it in Gregory the Great. I see it in all the major thinkers in the medieval West coming out of Augustine. Well, most Christians don't hold that today, even Catholics. Even Catholics will mostly depart from that today. And I think that kind of shows one of those things where there's a selectivity to these appeals to tradition. It's like, well, we go with the tradition except where we don't, you know? No, nobody's just going lockstep barrel with the tradition on everything. And I um, I think we have to appreciate that prior to Augustine, the practice was incredibly differentiated. It was, it was very diverse. And so that's one appeal is that um, we are, uh, we're dealing with very complicated historical data, data that precedes us. But the other appeal I would say to Baptists, and that is that we need to be, we need to humble ourselves under the complexity of this question. And I would say that it's good for us to consider where have we betrayed Catholicity in our spirit, in our mindset, or in our practice? And I think a good question for Baptists to wrestle with is closed communion, closed membership type questions. Uh, I've written on that. You know, the, the, those things are out there. I don't necessarily, I, my main point right now wouldn't be to try to resolve all the complexity of that because those are complicated issues. And I don't think it's kind of just obvious how to think about them, but I think it's at least worth considering. Do you really want to say, because a historic mainstream Baptist practice, though not the universal one, is to practice closed membership and closed communion, i.e. if you're not baptized by immersion as an adult, then you are unbaptized. Therefore, you cannot be a member of the Baptist church and you cannot take the Lord's Supper. And um, I think it's worth us revisiting that. I, I believe that that's an issue that we need to rethink through. At the very least, think it through again and make sure you're at peace with that in your conscience. And I would say that it's probably good to to um, really consider, is that, uh, 
can you do that and still retain a meaningful Catholicity? Because there you're saying every single person in the Christian church didn't have the sacrament of initiation and was unbaptized, and the sacrament of baptism disappeared for about a millennium. And that's a tough thing to say, that the church lacked one of her sacraments for 1,000 years. And if you want to say that, at least be really sure. Because <laughs> I think a lot of times people just assume that that's how Baptists are. That's what we got to do. But there's a lot of Baptists who have pushed back against that. There's a lot of Baptists who are saying, no, we can hold to our view while still recognizing other Christians as Christians worthy of membership in the church and as worthy recipients of the Lord's Supper. And that would be where my sympathies would incline. But at least I'm just encouraging Baptists to humble, humbly consider that challenge. I have a question um, that relates to maybe pastoral wisdom as a Baptist pastor on how to handle professions of faith from uh, younger children. Um, I think maybe you might have a unique perspective on this, given that you know you were raised in a Presbyterian home and now you become um, a Baptist pastor. What do you? What would you say w- would be some good advice to a Baptist pastor who is? Because you know, I think some some Baptist groups uh, or Baptist churches in my opinion at least, have overcorrected. Uh, and, you know, we won't baptize you until you're 16 or 18 or whatever. Um, but I, I'm i not comfortable with that. I'm just curious of what your take is on um, maybe age of accountability issues and, and things of that nature. Yeah. I think the word you use there is very helpful, the overcorrected. I think this is just a sad reality of Christian history that where we see these fractures, so often both sides become defined in relation to the opposite, and there can be an overreaction. And I think I, I think there's all kinds of bad ways to do ecumenism, but I, I think there are some good uh, ways to think about that. And one of them is to just be open to humbly consider, you know, are there any ways where we misunderstood the other side or where we reacted too strongly against them? And if so, can we at least to some degree, you know, come closer? And I would say this is an area where I have a similar feeling about it is you. It seems like a lot of the Baptist traditions have gone so far in the other direction from Pyto-Baptism. And I think, you know, I, I actually don't have a really strong view about a specific age in the abstract, because I do believe it depends upon the context and the child. Um, but I will say that if one is delaying baptism, it should never be for the reason that a child cannot have true faith, or a child is somehow sort of of secondary importance in the Christian church. And I just think that that is utterly inconsonant with Jesus's attitude towards children. So when a, you know, can a six-year-old child be a Christian? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can, you know, can a, can a, can an eight-year-old child be a meaningful contributor as a member of the church? You betcha. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so um, if, if, you know, if we now, if someone had the view that for a particular reason there might be value in for this person delaying their baptism um, because of concerns of they don't understand yet what the significance of that is, or they are in a particular circumstance where um, they're just not personally ready for that for whatever reason, I think there can be prudential wisdom. Uh, considerations that will cause one situation to look different from another in terms of what's that exact age. But I just think we need to be careful not to, as you say, overcorrect and, you know, 
um, what we in that overcorrection, what we want to really avoid is having anything that is disdainful toward the children uh, that are within our churches, because we know how the Lord feels about them. So I want to follow up on that question, because I think, I mean, I agree with you, first of all, but I think there's a lot of Baptists that I know that would disagree. And I think the rationale sort of goes like this for why you'd want to delay baptism for a child of any age. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it's arbitrary. They put, you know, age of accountability. It's like 12 or 13 or whatever, or it's just simple 18, because that's when you're theoretically in the American system independent and become your own free thinker. But the idea is they want to link baptism and church membership uh, together. So when you're baptized, you become a member of the church and you partake of the Lord's Supper. And I think the reasoning is maybe twofold. Number one, you don't have the intellectual capacities as a six-year-old to be a true full-fledged voting member. So it seems inconsistent to delay your access to membership when baptism is supposed to grant you that. So I, I think we agree on that point. We agree and say, yes, baptism gives us access to membership. And But they think, well, a seven-year-old's not ready for membership, therefore we will delay baptism. But there's also this other aspect that I think I've heard along the lines of the reason you would want to delay it and not let them become a member is because, well, they would be unduly influenced by their parents and voting aspects. And I just as I think about it, you can tell me if you disagree or you you think I'm wrong. That seems really silly because I'm influenced by all sorts of things to to vote in particular ways. My pastor influences me to vote a particular way. My friend influences me to vote a particular way. My spouse influences me to vote a particular way. And that's irrespective of age. Age isn't going to suddenly just drop down this golden ticket of I can be free and autonomous and completely independent in my voting capacity. So it's I would just say, so what if a child's influenced by their parents? That's that's a good thing to be influenced by others. Uh, hopefully, it's in a good direction, obviously. But I don't think that's a good reason to delay baptism. So maybe you walk me through a little bit of the what you think the objection main objections are to that, because I, I just don't see the consistency in that. I mean, I guess maybe I see the consistency, but I don't see the biblical and theological rationale that would make sense for it. Mm. Yes, I would say I'm I'm very much in sympathy with your comments. Jordan, I would say with regard to the Lord's Supper, I have no problem whatsoever with the seven-year-old having the Lord's Supper if they're a Christian. Because again, I just don't feel, I, I could put it as strongly as this, that I actually don't feel I have any right whatsoever to exclude them from the table of the Lord if they have Jesus Christ in their life. And they can. And so on that issue, I don't see that as a problem. In fact, I would say that would be a reason why they should get baptized so they can fully participate in the uh, the other sacrament. With regard to voting, it seems to me that voting is one particular responsibility that not every member has to partake of. So you could say that someone is a member of the church, but maybe they're not old enough to participate in all the full functions of membership. So it seems to me there could be a middle ground on something like that. Or just let them vote. <laughs> like you said, I mean, I also don't see that as this major scary, oh, no, you know. But but also, I mean, it makes sense, like... There's lots of other contexts in which um, families will be involved as full members, and yet there'll be diff a gradation of responsibilities. And so something like voting may, you know, may not be open for everybody at every age. So it seems to me there's ways to address those concerns without saying you can't get baptized till you're 18 or something like that. 
As we land the plane here, uh, I just have one final question. I know mostly we've been talking about the history of baptism in this episode, but I have a maybe more of a scriptural question. In your journey from paedo-baptism to, to credo-baptism, <clears throat> how much, if any, uh, role did uh, the mode of immersion play in convincing you that that was correct? Like the picture that you have of, of the dying and the rising of the, of the new man and, you know, our being united with Christ and his death and his resurrection, that picture that you get in baptism by immersion that, that you don't get in some other traditions, did that play a role in your transition? That was a supplemental point and a supportive point, but not a decisive or conclusive point. Um, I think it's supportive. I think it kind of fits well with credo baptism to think that this is, it means submerge. When Jesus is getting baptized, it seems like he's going down under the water. It seems like it's the way it was done. Um, but I would say that, you know, there are the Eastern Orthodox s- submerge the infant. <laughs> so you, you can do it. Uh, be careful. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so it's not like it's, and then I would say things like that. That's is another area where there could be overreactions among some Baptists where they, it's hyper rigid, you know, even like the Didache, the first century document says, Baptize uh, by immersion, but if there's no water around, then dip a pour three times in the name of the Trinity. Well, I think that's reasonable. What if you live in the desert? Are you going to delay baptism until there's a rain? You know, and you or or what if the person is in a hospital bed and they can't get out of bed and they're going to die? Are you going to not baptize them? You know, like it seems to me that we can say that immersion should be the normal way to do it, but then leave room for special circumstances. And uh, so like if you weren't done completely under the water it, by accident, right. it doesn't count anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's these hyper rigid kind of things where I think um, I don't think we need to think that rigidly about it. And so, yeah, I would say um, that I, I think the, the, my, so that's a, that's a consideration in all of this, but I don't think it's absolutely decisive. I think the major thing for me was just thinking through the nature of the church uh, and what the New Testament teaches about who are the members of the church. And I'm just not persuaded that this particular ecclesiology has warrant, namely those who believe and their children one generation. I just don't, I'm not, I've not been persuaded of that. Well, and this has been great stuff all around, but can you just take a couple of seconds and remind our listeners for those who want to learn more where is it that you've written on these things? Because I know you've done some popular level writing as well, some back and forth too. So just give us, you know, a high level. Where are these at? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I think the two things that come to mind, we want a Themelios article entitled Why Not Grandchildren. That's a longer academic article where I just give my case for why I'm a credo Baptist. The second thing would be a, an interaction I had with Jonathan Lehman on mere orthodoxy about the question of membership where I defended an open membership view. And I can't recall the titles of those two articles. I think one of them, but I don't know, people can find them. Yeah, totally. So I'll link to both of those in the show notes as well. So thanks, Dr. Orland, for taking the time to talk with us. This has been really helpful. Uh, I know everybody here who's been listening has been challenged and helped by it. And as a reminder, everybody's listening. You got to check out Dr. Gavin Orland's YouTube. So go find it, Truth Unites, hit the subscribe button, Give them a thumbs up on a couple videos. Uh, It really encourages them and helps spread some good content like that. And as you know, for everybody who's been tuning in, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we will talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. 
Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.